Listener supported. WNYC Studios. The word newt was originally an oot. <laughs> an oot? Yeah. E-W-T? Oot? It had, it had another E on the end. E-W-T-E. An oot, which is a very cute name, I think, for those little creatures. It's, yeah, I kind of prefer that, I think. <laughs> if you make a podcast or write a newsletter... There's a certain kind of email that you inevitably get. And I should say most of the emails that we get are incredibly kind and full of cool ideas. And please do keep sending them to podcasts at sciencefriday.com. But this kind of email is not about the content of our show, but about mistakes in my language. Typos, sentence structures that are technically incorrect, the whole nine yards. And I get it. I do. I mean, we make a show about words. Our listeners are going to have strong opinions about them. That's great. But the thing is, when you spend all of your time looking up the origins of words, one thing you notice is that in language, what's considered correct, very slippery concept. Because the rules of language change depending on who you are, where you live, who you hang out with. And one of the coolest things about language is that it's always changing. Some of your favorite words, words you would definitely recognize and use all the time, started off as mistakes. Apron. Nickname. Yeah, those words were wrong. So in this episode, I talked to Emily Brewster and Peter Sokolowski, lexicographers at Merriam-Webster and co-hosts of the Word Matters podcast. We talked about how language evolves, how wrong becomes right, and the fortunate accidents that led to some of our very best words. From Science Friday, this is Science Diction. I'm Johanna Mayer. Today, we're talking wrong. And that's okay. Hello, Emily and Peter. Hello, Johanna. How are you? I'm well. I'm really excited to talk to you guys today. Um, So you're... First episode on Word Matters, I noticed is called Irregardless, You Don't Have to Like It, (laughs) which is quite a provocative title because, I mean, that's like an all-time classic linguistic pet peeve for a bunch of people, right? And I mean, I imagine that you probably hear from people about stuff like this all the time. It's the gift that keeps on giving for dictionary editors. (laughs) Um, And one thing that I like about it is paradoxically, it gives us this moment to explain how the dictionary works, which is to say we describe the facts of language. We don't um, sort of prescribe an idealized version of it. Can you give me kind of the Cliff Notes version of what the deal is with Irregardless? (laughs) Well, people don't like that it seems to be, that. well, that it says exactly that it has the same function in the language as the word regardless, right? As far as functionally what they do, they mean exactly the same thing. But that ear prefix sounds like it should mean, you know, not. That irregardless should actually mean um, the opposite of regardless. And instead, it means exactly the same thing. But English actually doesn't have a problem with this kind of duplication. We've got all kinds of instances in the language uh, where we have multiple ways of saying something. 
complaining about irregardless, often we hear um, that uh, it was just added. It was, uh, it, it's, you know, the end of civilization is here because uh, the dictionary has added this given word. In fact, it was first in our dictionaries, I think, in 1934. It goes back all a long way. Um, mm. And so uh, in some cases, people have just noticed it or, or someone on social media will say, hey, did you know that uh, this is now an entry? Um, and so you have this sort of apocalyptic uh, response that, you know, people say that, that the standard standards are eroding and that kids today and all the rest of it, um, whereas language has, in fact, of course, always changed, always evolved, always moved. Now, irregardless is so deeply despised. People <laughs> people find it so incredibly irksome that we do, in fact, in our dictionary, give a little note that says you, 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 pr- you probably want to use regardless instead. But it's not because there's something really wrong with the word irregardless. The problem with the word irregardless is just the, the way that it's the way that it's regardless. The way that mm-hmm. the way that it, you know, it, it is, it, it inevitably will distract people from what you're actually trying to communicate. Yeah, yeah. The, it, it gives me a chance to bring out um, the part of a dictionary definition that we call usage, which is to say, is this word offensive? Uh, is it archaic? Is it British? Is, is it likely to cause embarrassment to you? And that has to do with something outside of the word itself. And that's the case here, that we give a usage note that says, you know, use regardless instead, because anyone who pays attention to these things is likely to judge you on its use. That's the information that a dictionary needs to give. The dictionary's got your back. That's what we're trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was also going to ask Emily and Peter how this affects you personally. You know, like, do people complain to you when they find out what you do when they have a linguistic pet peeve like that? I think the most common response I get if I meet meet someone for the first time and they find out that I, I am a lexicographer, I write dictionary definitions for a living, people are often, um, first of all, concerned that I will judge their language use, that I will mm. I will identify that they are that they, that they don't know how to talk, that they that they don't <laughs> know their own language. And then um, then there are other people, and sometimes it's the same person actually, who will want me to uh, to help them. Um, talk through just how reprehensible a particular word is, like the figurative use of literally, for example, you know, like, oh, <laughs> uh-huh. it's so awful. You must hate this. How can you, you know, and the, I think that in truth, I as a lexicographer encounter all of these things out of sheer curiosity. I, mean, I think mm. if you use a word in a way that is not typical, uh, I don't assume you're wrong. I assume that I'm missing something like, oh, where, you know, where did that come from? Mm. I don't assume that they're wrong. I assume that there's, there's more to the story. Absolutely. I, I mean, I would just say also that the same thing happens to me, and that assumption is, is sort of backwards because the 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 people who are linguists and lexicographers that I know um, actually probably judge the speech of others much much less than some other observant listener. Uh, and that's because we do it all day, every day. It's a muscle that we've exercised and we we don't judge. We notice. We notice. That's what we do. Well, and because also I think we're we're so focused on the English as a as the long game. You know, it's <laughs> True. when you when you pay a lot of attention, when you know when when you learn the history of the language and the history of the words, you see that no word is actually completely stable through its entire history. We have words that have existed for a thousand for a thousand years and in most cases they have shifted in meaning in one way or another and sometimes in extreme ways. So if you start paying attention to the language, you see that that all of these things are kind of up for revision. 
So a lot of your crankiest letters seem to be about people complaining that things are wrong, quote unquote. But I think a really great counter argument to that is that a ton of what's considered to be correct today actually started off as a mistake. Peter and Emily, you brought us a few words that started off as mistakes. Ready to dive in? Sure. I'm going to start with one of my very favorites. The word is nickname. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Johanna, what's a nickname? Not a dictionary definition, but how do you understand what a nickname is? Um, just like a like a fun, familiar name that you call someone that is not their given name. Yeah. Yeah. It's an extra name. It's an additional name that a person has. The word started out. It has uh, its earliest iteration. Uh, it dates to the days of Middle English. And the word was not nickname, but it was eek name. E-K-E-N-A-M-E. And that eek segment means additional. And in Middle English, it actually functioned oh. with the meaning of uh, an, an additional thing. And in, in Scottish English, you the word eek, E-K-E, still functions as a noun, meaning an addition or extension. And really? So, yeah. So a nickname was originally an eek name, meaning an other name, an additional name that you had. Now, what happened there is that uh, we had the article an and then the noun, eek name. Uh, I see where this is going. <laughs> yes, yes. And this is a pattern in English. English actually has a number of these words through a process that is called false division or also meta-analysis. Um, the N in the article an got transferred to the front of the noun. And so instead of an eek name, we got a nickname. A nickname. I love that. What are some other examples? Okay, I've got a pair. Cherry. And pea, as in peas and carrots. Each of these words was originally a word that ended in the S sound. Cherry was from French charisse, C-H-E-R-I-S-E. But English speakers learning the word charisse uh, understood it as being cherries. And then you have multiple cherries, and then you have one cherry. (laughs) (laughs) And the same thing happened with P. The word originally, I think it's an old English word. It's not a a borrowing from French. But the word was originally peas, P-E-A-S-E, and it was a mass noun like butter. You would have, you know, you wouldn't have, you don't have a butter. But then people understood peas as being the plural form of the word. And so the word P was born. So we have had nickname, cherries, peas. Peter, what's next? Another pair. Um, One of the things that happens uh, when uh, language enters a new geographical area is that there are new names for the flora and the fauna. Um, One thing that's interesting about Noah Webster's first dictionary, 1806, is the first dictionary of English that had the word skunk in it um, because that's a North American animal and the British lexicographers had not encountered uh, had not encountered this animal. Uh-huh. There were other such animals like the muskrat. Um, and the muskrat, and we hear that R-A-T, the, the rat of muskrat, which certainly if you know what it looks like, it's a little furry thing. So it certainly <laughs> could be, a, you know, a mammal related to, you know, to mice or, or rats. Uh, but in point of fact, it's from the native American language, an Algonquian uh, dialect, the Massachusetts language from that tribe called the Musquash. And that was the name that they had given to this local animal. And the English-speaking settlers took that word and sort of made it fit into the English sort of phonotactics, which is to say the sound system, and made it kind of 
fit some kind of logic, a logic that certainly would seem to work to this day because it's a small, furry creature. So muskrat has nothing to do with rat. Um, the word came from musquash, from the Native American word. And there is another one that works just the same way, and that is the word woodchuck, um, also oh. an Algonquian word. And it came from akuchan, a Narragansett word. Um, and again, akuchan, if you hear it through English ears that are limited you know, to, to English mm-hmm. language patterns, um, you make it a woodchuck. So it really has nothing to do with its ability to throw, for example. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's probably so many words like that in the English language that are just that, you know, were indigenous words that were just sort of smushed into a uh, like phonetic system that we can process. Right, right. The process of anglicization, we call it. Right. That's when mm-hmm. a, when a word is kind of rejiggered so that it so that it fits the so that it so that it makes sense as a word within the language. And also there's a there's a there's a thought process that it, right people want want their words to be familiar to them. This makes me think of the next one I have for you, and that is the word hangnail. Ooh, I can't wait for this one. <laughs> right, a hangnail uh, is a is a, you know the little painful piece of skin that hangs just at the edge of your nail. It gets inflamed. Oh, yeah. It's right. It hurt. It's painful. Very familiar. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's hanging there. It makes sense that you would call it. It's hanging next to your nail. It makes sense that it would be called a hang nail. But the hang part is much newer than than the word itself. The old English word was angnal or something like that. I don't know exactly how it was pronounced because I don't speak old English. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the uh, the original Old English word meant corn on the foot, and the ang, really yeah yeah and the ang that gave us that eventually became hang meant painful and it's actually related to the word anger really yeah that hang part had nothing to do with something hanging off of anything else was that just kind of I mean I guess it was just a sort of a coincidence that the word angry <laughs> happened to sound like the word hang and they both fit. Right. I mean, it, well, it, it's, it, shows how, it shows how speakers of a language want to make things more logical. I will never think of hangnails the same again. <laughs> if they make you angry, it's for good etymological reason. <laughs> <laughs> After the break, the accidental origin of the word apron. And we're back with more mistakes. I have a couple false divisions, if you if you don't mind, a couple um, yeah. that connect to French. French is such a incredibly important part of English, uh, and um, there's a cultural story there. It's because of the Norman Conquest. People were speaking the Old English or the Anglo-Saxon language until uh, the Normans invaded, and, and it's important to point out that they won <laughs> that, that battle, um, and they brought with them their language. So French is an incredible um, source. Uh, it's a very rich source of English vocabulary. A couple of these English words come from, in some sense, a mis- misunderstanding of French words. So the French word for uh, for a, a tablecloth uh, was napperon, um or nap. Uh, still to this day, nap, uh, like N-A-P-P-E would be, you know, the tablecloth. Mm-hmm. And um, what we w- would now call an apron uh, came from that kind of cloth that was uh, referred to as a napron, a napron. But if you say a napron enough, then it becomes an apron. And so the, oh. the N got separated and actually moved over to the article. <laughs> so instead of a napron, it's an apron. Um, and that's how that word was formed, which is that's a kind of a fun one. 
Yeah, at the end, just like kind of floated over and tacked itself onto the other word. Totally. And in the opposite process, uh, the word newt was originally an oot. <laughs> an oot? Yeah. E-W-T? Oot? It had, it had another E on the end. E-W-T-E. An oot, which is a very cute name, I think, for those little creatures. It's, yeah, I kind of prefer that, I think. <laughs> We can take it back, you know. Let's just, <laughs> yeah. if everybody just says an oot again, eventually, eventually, maybe it'll, it'll um, gain territory that it had lost. <laughs> That's very cute. Yeah, actually, one, one point that I would like to add, Johanna, is the, the idea that false division. That's a process that really doesn't happen very much in modern English anymore because now we see words in print so much. I was going to ask if we're still getting words from mistakes nowadays, but I think you just kind of answered my question, said it just because so much of our language is written, not so much of a thing anymore. True. But there is such a thing, such a linguistic phenomenon called an egg corn. An egg corn is a word that is misheard or word or a phrase that is misheard and misunderstood and, and actually makes logical sense as being something other than what it is. So, for example, mm. the word acorn being understood as egg corn. Egg corn, it's kind of, you know, maybe it's a little egg shaped. It's the oak tree's egg, maybe, right? So, ah. And that term egg corn is now used to refer to words that are a misunderstanding of the standard form of a word. And we have lots of these and these do, we do still see them appear. And um, social media is a great way to encounter them. Uh, we <laughs> did not used to have access to the informal writing of millions of people. And now we all do all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps too much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's astounding. To, I like to think about this because it's so remarkable to me how much informal written language um, we never had access to before and that we now have to the nth degree. And so we now see on Twitter people say day-to-day -day operations of an industry, for example, instead of the day-to-day, they mm -hmm. say day and then today. <laughs> now, I don't know, I cannot think of a single egg corn that has yet um, been used so widely that we have entered it into our dictionaries. Um, well, I, so, but, but I have a, the time could come. I have a question about one that I actually am not sure which is the which is the actual definition. I'm sure that you'll be able to tell me. But one that's always confused me is deeply seated or is it deeply seated? Like a deeply seated belief, S-E-A-T-E-D or S-E-E-D-E-D, -E -E -D, because I think they both make total sense. Do you know the answer off the top of your head, Peter? I don't, but okay. it's, a, it's, a, it's a good one. It's, it's a, really, a really good one. Yeah. yeah. I'm looking it up as well. Um, I would love to hear more about some of the false division words. You mentioned there were a lot of them. Do you want to know about deep-seated first? <laughs> yes. I, I Please solve this lifelong mystery for me before we move on. All right. So people do use both uh, deep hyphen S-E-A-T-E-D, like you sit on uh -huh. a seat, and also deep S-E-E-D-E-D, -E -E -D, like you sow seeds somewhere. Mm -hmm. The established, the original, the correct term is seated as in what you sit on. Hmm. Deep seated, and it means you know firmly established, as in yeah. deep seated resentment. Um, but it also has this earlier meaning that is situated far below the surface, and uh, so this uh, 
although, you know, I don't know why that doesn't also make sense for seeded as in you yeah. sow seeds. Hmm. I think my confusion is very warranted. Absolutely. And that is often the case, right? Like our, our need to make to make these things make sense hmm. is very reasonable. And um, and it often is true, but not always. And so I've been saying it wrong my whole life. I thought it was the other way. No one, no one can, no one can understand the difference between those two anyway. Yeah, and I have to say that's a surprise. That's a surprise answer, even to me. I wonder what you both think we can learn from the fact that so much of English comes from mistakes. I think what it says is that we try to impose a logic upon language, but language is an expression of humanity, and therefore it's always got. Uh, complexities that are not explainable in strictly logical terms. We are not robots. We, we, we don't function in a strictly logical sequence. And therefore, language is going to develop uh, as a living thing. I mean, think of a plant. If you give it sunlight and water, it's going to grow. If a certain word uh, is used by a large number of people, it will become a standard part of that language. If it's not, if it's coined and it's clever and it's perfect and it's logical, but nobody ever uses it, it simply won't be part of that language. And so uh, I think it's useful to think of language as, a, as an organic thing. My thoughts are very similar. I like to think about language as being a tool, and it's a tool that is used for the most intimate of human acts, communicating. And as a tool, and a tool that is so intimately experienced, I love to think how it is malleable and how it, it shifts in order to meet the needs of the people who use it. Emily Brewster and Peter Sokolowski, thank you so much. This was really fun. Thanks so much for having us, Johanna. Yes, it's great to be here. Thank you. Before we wrap up this episode... Emily and Peter and I took a detour in our conversation that just so happened to answer a listener question that we got last week via voicemail. Do you know what word, what English word is used throughout the world more than any other English word? Hmm. Give me a second. It's a good question. I mean, I'm ge- I, I think I would have guessed cool, but in light of our conversation, is that... Not correct. That's not correct. I'm going to say, hmm. Yeah. It can't be like, I feel like it's it's got to be some sort of exclamation like that. Like, I don't think it's awesome, but sort of something in that uh, terrain, maybe. It's a super useful word and has wide application and it's easy to pronounce. It's kind of a reassuring word. Mm, okay. Yes, that's it. <laughs> Excellent. The word okay. Do you know the origin of the word okay? No, I can't wait for you to tell me. By complete coincidence, Biz Collins called us to ask about okay. You see it in foreign languages. Um, where did it start? Who started it? Why is it so integrated into other languages? So there was actually a really fun trend that started in Boston in the summer of 1838 to make up new acronyms, kind of like OMG or LOL today. All the cool newspapers were doing acronyms, like so many acronyms. No go. That was NG. Remains to be seen. RTBS or give the devil his due. GTDHD. Of course. And then, 
On March 23rd, 1839, in Boston's Morning Post, there appeared OK. And it stood for All Correct. Oh. In a, wait, sorry, what language? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, right? Yeah. All Correct only makes sense as OK if you spell it O L L. K-O-R-R-E-C-T. A linguist named Alan Walker Reed mm-hmm. uh, did some fantastic research on it and nailed down the earliest, as far as we know, um, his research was very definitive. So I'm pretty confident that he really did find the very first example of OK. And it was glossed in this newspaper article. So it said OK, and then it said, you know, all correct. So looks like OK started almost 200 years ago in Boston. But how did it become so pervasive? Well, in 1840, it was used in the presidential re-election campaign of Martin Van Buren, though they said then it stood for Old Kinderhook, which was a nickname for the president who came from Kinderhook, New York. So that helped popularize OK. But otherwise, kind of hard to tell how it traveled quite so far. But it spread all over America and then all over the world. And American culture and the English language as a whole are both major international exports, so not surprising. But OK really took off, maybe because it's so useful. Totally neutral, short, relatively easy to pronounce using the sounds of a lot of different languages. I hope that answers your question, Biz. As always, if you have a question, suggestion, or maybe you just feel a little cranky and want to complain at us, send an email to podcasts at sciencefriday.com or better yet, leave us a voicemail at 929-499-WORD. That's 929-499-9673. Your messages have already inspired some segments currently in the works. Irregardless, we read and listen to all of them. They are literally so precious to us. <laughs> okay. Science Fiction is produced by me and our senior producer, Ella Fetter. Daniel Peterschmidt is our composer, and they mastered this episode. Nadia Ortelt is our chief content officer, and she just doesn't understand why she can't address me as Worker 638. Is this word offensive? Uh, is it archaic? Is it British? See you in a couple weeks.